few years ago when um, Jonathan and Heidi first started coming out here to church, uh, Jonathan and I were talking, and he said, hey, because I've always wanted to have a music ministry, and he says, uh, James, will you teach me how to sing? <laughs> I said, sure. So, Esther, chapter 3. Now, if you uh, weren't with us uh, last uh, week when we started the book of Esther, I want to give you just a little bit of background on this. The key verse in the book of Esther is Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is a God-ordained book of God moving the puzzle pieces around even when we don't see it. In chapter 1, Vashti the queen loses her job. In chapter 2, Esther becomes queen. This, this young Jewish girl that does not deserve, inherit, or should have the throne in any way whatsoever gets the throne. She becomes queen, queen of the Persian Empire, the most powerful empire in the world. Why did that happen? Why did Queen Vashti lose her job? Why did Esther become queen? Because God was moving these puzzle pieces around. Because in chapter 3, which we're going to get to today, Haman wants to destroy all the Jews, which Esther is. And so what you see here is God setting these things up and taking care of it. And we said that's the key verse in the book of Esther, is you do not know that you've been called to a time like this. Some of you are in an Esther moment right now. You don't know why, you don't know what, you don't know where. Lord, what is going on and why are you allowing these things to happen? God is moving behind the scenes and working, even though you don't see it and I don't see it. And the book of Esther shows that to us. And you may be thinking, well, why doesn't God just tell us what's going on? Well, the interesting thing about the book of Esther is the name God is never mentioned once in the entire book. That's a fascinating concept. They have a book of the Bible, 10 chapters long, where the name God is never mentioned once because it shows us that sometimes God is moving and working behind the scenes and we don't see any of it. It's kind of that quiet moment with the Lord of, Lord, just, just fill me in a little bit here. And God says, I will fill you in in time, but right now, do you have faith? Do you just trust me? Do you trust I'm working even when you don't see it? And that is what Esther is about, God moving and working even when we don't see it. But that being said, we're introduced now this morning in verse 1 to Haman. Esther 3, verse 1, it says, After these things, King Azarius promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agiite, and advanced him and set him in the seat above all the princes who were with him. If you were making a list of bad guys in the New Testament and the Old Testament, I should say, in the entire Bible, Haman would have to be in the top five. This guy is not a good guy in any way whatsoever. So here's Haman. Now, Haman eventually is going to want to destroy all the Jews. And you can see how his point comes into this. His goal is to destroy all of the Jews. Haman is a representation of just that evilness, that sin that wants to destroy you and I. Now, generally, when we read a verse like verse 1, we kind of skip over the idea of Hazarius and uh, Hamadatha and Agiite, and we kind of move on because we don't use those words. That word there, Agiite, is vital vital to understanding what is going on here because you have to know who an Agiite is. Agiite means they were a descendant of King Agag. King Agag was king of the Amalekites. Now these are probably names you're not really familiar with but it's important to know that an Agiite is a descendant of King Agag what was the king of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were the original bad guys in the Old Testament. When the Jews came out of Egypt, the first group to attack them were the Amalekites. We know that from uh, Exodus, there, I believe it's Exodus chapter 17. The Amalekites come in and attack the Jews. And the Amalekites were just a thorn in the side of the Jews through all the different books. They're a problem in the book of Exodus. They're a problem in the book of Judges. They're a problem in the book of 1 Samuel. They're this problem nation. It keeps on coming and attacking the Jews and keeps on trying to pull them down. What the Amalekites are is they're a picture of sin in your and mine life. Just these sins that keep attacking us and pulling us down. Turn, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's talk about these guys for a little bit. 1 Samuel chapter 15. As you're going to 1 Samuel chapter 15, I want to give you just a little bit more background here on the Amalekites. 
Once again, when the Jews were coming out of Egypt, we know from Deuteronomy chapter 25 that it says that the Amalekites came up and attacked them. As you're going to 1 Samuel 15, I'm just going to read you a quick verse out of Deuteronomy 25. It says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. That's what the Amalekites did. They attacked him from behind, got the stragglers, the ones that were tired, the ones that were weary, that's what they attack. Isn't that what sin does? Sin attacks us from behind when we're tired and weary and our defenses are down. That's what sin does. Nobody ever wakes up and says, you know what, I just really want to be bad today. I just really want to sin. What happens is throughout the day is we make little compromises. And those little compromises then go for a couple of days, they go for a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And then what happens is the person comes to my office and says, how did I get into this spot? This is not where I want my life wanted to be. How did I get into this slop? This mess of life. Well, because we made compromises again and again and again over weeks, over months, over years sometimes. Then those compromises come back to bite us. What happens is just like the Amalekites attacked from the rear, the rear ranks, we were tired, we were weary, and we got hit from behind. That's what sin does. So we got to be careful. We have to make sure that our defenses are up and strong in the Lord because sin will attack us when we're weak. Well, the next thing that you see the Amalekites doing, once again, you don't need to turn there. It's just one quick verse. It's out of the book of Judges, chapter 6. It says in Judges chapter 6, it says, So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. What do you see the Amalekites doing next? Is they would let the Israelites plant their crop, and then when the crop would come up, the Amalekites would come in and say, this is ours. We're going to take everything you've produced. We're going to steal your fruit. We're going to steal your animals. We're going to steal all your sustenance. That's exactly what sin does too. Sin steals the fruit out of your life. Wow, I can't witness to that person. I can't serve in that ministry because I got so much stuff going on in my life. That's sin stealing the fruit out of your life. That's sin stealing the fruit of joy, just like Jonathan was saying there. You know, how many times have we said out here? A lot of times in life, you're not going to be happy, but there's the joy of the Lord that's your strength. See, sin comes in, attacks you from behind. It waits till you're weary and tired, and it hits you in the rear ranks stragglers. Next thing that sin does is it waits until there's some fruit and it comes in and says, I'm going to steal this fruit from you. I'm going to steal the joy of service. I'm going to steal the joy of love of the Lord. I'm going to take these things from you and take your sustenance, as it says. That's what the Amalekites did. So that's exactly what sin still does today. It hits us when we're down. It hits us when we're weak. It hits us when we're straggling with the Lord, when we're ho-hum with him. Boy, we're right pickings. It hits us when we think we're finally in that place of fruit and of just we can relax a little bit. Now it comes in and steals the crop right underneath us. That's what sin does. So what is our response to sin then? Well, now let's go to 1 Samuel 15. These Amalekites, led by King Agag, what is our response? What are we supposed to do to this? Because they attack us. They steal our joy, our service. Well, you see in 1 Samuel 15 what God wants us to do. Verse 1, it says, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek. For what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, have and do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's what God wants you to feel about sin. He says, I want you to have a hatred of it and destroy it. Problem is, we look at verse 3 and say, well, wait, wait a second. I'm okay with destroying the bad guys. I'm okay with destroying the sheep and the ox and the donkey, or I'd, I'd be okay with destroying all donkeys. You know, we're okay with destroying those things that have no value. But come on, infants? Nursing child? 
This is why I have a hard time with the Lord, people say. I actually knew a guy. It said, this is why I have a hard time with God, because of those type of commands. So you have to remember, what does Amalek represent? Amalek represents sin. God says, I want you to destroy everything with sin. Utterly destroy it. The problem is, we compromise and say, it's not that bad. I mean, I know that show's not good, but it's not that bad. It's the child. It's the nursing infant. It's the person that says, you know what, I'm not going to drink. I know I have a problem with drinking. I'm just going to keep one beer in the bottom of the fridge just on that day, you know, maybe one every now and then. That's saving that nursing child, that infant. It's the person that says, you know what, I have a tendency to let my eyes wander online, so I'm not going to go to those bad websites anymore. But there's a couple sites. I mean, it's not that bad. This is what we do. We compromise. We don't want to destroy the nursing child, the infant, the sheep. No, it's okay with the camels, the donkeys, the men, the women. Yeah, but but come on. God says, no, wait a second. If that Amalek is a representation of sin, you want to utterly destroy it. Well, what happens with Saul here? Jump ahead to uh, verse 13. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. Saul went out and defeated the Amalekites. He goes, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What is this then, the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of sheep and the oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. That is what we do in verse 15. We spiritualize our sin. Saul, we save the good stuff because we want to sacrifice it to God. God said utterly destroy it. Well, we know he said earlier to destroy it, but we kept the good stuff so we could sacrifice it to God. Boy, don't we do that as Christians? We spiritualize our sin. We make excuses. We make compromise where God says, you have to utterly destroy it. But yet we just find this little middle ground and said it's really not all that bad. Well, Samuel tries to explain to Saul, come on, obedience. Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, but I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. No, you didn't, Saul. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which you should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. See, Saul, you don't get it. I mean, yeah, okay, now I, now I, I even saved King Agag there in verse 20. Okay, I know God said utterly destroy everything, but Lord, we're doing this for the Lord. That spiritualizing of sin and compromise. Haven't you ever met somebody that is so full of sin, but yet they say enough things about God and scriptures and the Lord's moving me to do this and that? No. You're just trying to cover up that it's disobedience. Verse 22, so Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed from the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul comes out and says in verse 22, he goes, excuse me, Samuel comes out and says, it's not that God wants the offerings and the sacrifice. He goes, he wants your heart. He wants your heart. See, in the Old Testament, I'm religious. I sacrifice animals. I'm right with God. Now, we don't sacrifice animals today, but we have our own little picture of religion. I'm religious. I give to the church. I, I serve in the back. I help old women across the street. I'm a religious person. God says, I don't care about what you're doing. I care about your heart. He goes, I want to know, is your heart obedient to me? Don't show me what you're doing. What is your heart? See, Saul's heart wasn't right with the Lord. Look at this verse. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice in verse 22. God says, I don't want the dead animals in blood. He goes, Saul, I want your heart. See, we don't look at verse 23 as rebellionist as the sin of witchcraft. Now, witchcraft, oh, that's a horrible sin. God says it's the same as rebellion. Boy, how many of us have been rebellious in our walk with the Lord? Well, what about stubbornness? See, now we look at stubbornness as almost an admirable trait. 
hey, he's just, a, he's just a stubborn guy. That's just the way he is. And then what happens in our spiritual walk, we almost seem to downplay it. Oh, I know what the Lord's asked me to do. He's made that abundantly clear, and I'm just, I'm just not doing it right now. I just need to do it. That stubbornness, according to verse 23, is the same as iniquity and idolatry. God says, no, don't rebel against me. Don't be stubborn against what I said. Rebellion is as witchcraft, and stubbornness is as idolatry. Because if you know what I told you to do, then you do it. Because to make these little compromises, to let the sheep live, to let King Ag Ag live, those are spiritual compromises that are going to come back and hurt you because he says, I need, I want the Amalekites destroyed. They are a problem. Just like the sin in your life and the sin in my life, we need to utterly destroy it. Saul wouldn't do it. So what has to happen? Jump ahead to verse 32. Samuel said, bring Ag Ag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now I looked up that word hacked, because that's quite a visual, isn't it? And you have this picture of, okay, he just ran a sword through him. No, that word hacked means hacked. He hacked this guy up into pieces. The point is, we need to have a holy hatred of sin. So when that sin comes back into our life, we say, God, I hate this sin with a holy passion because this sin destroys me. It destroys my marriage. It destroys my witness, my family, my whatever. It destroys, Lord. I hate it. We need to have that same holy hatred of sin as Samuel had towards Agag. So when you see this, of him being an Agiite. That's a picture of sin, how it attacks us when we're weak, when we're straggling, and it takes our fruit, it steals our joy. And God says that needs to be utterly destroyed and taken care of. Haman is a picture of sin and how sin destroys. And that's who he is in the book of Esther, that picture of sin that's trying to destroy. Well, back to Esther chapter 3 now. Haman's a prideful guy. He's got a position of power here in the kingdom. And what happens is people are supposed to bow down to him, but verse 2, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, would not bow down, pay him homage. So what happens is, is Haman gets really upset at Mordecai, and he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, verse 4. So Haman says, okay, the way I'm going to deal with this is I'm not just going to take out Mordecai. I'm taking out all of them, all the Jews. He hates the Jews that much. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Azarias, the people of Mordecai. Haman says, I just don't want to take out Mordecai. I'm taking out all the Jews, every one of them. There is a hellish hate of Jews in the world today. And this is something from the beginning of the Bible to the end, is the enemy always wants to destroy the Jews. Pharaoh tried to destroy the Jews in the book of Exodus by killing all the babies. Haman tries to destroy the Jews here in Esther chapter 3. Herod tries to destroy the Jews in the beginning of the Gospels. Very simply put, why do they hate the Jews? Satan hates whatever God loves. It's that simple. When God says, these are my chosen people, Satan says, well, if you're your chosen people, I'm going to hate them. And here's my thing. I can get on my little soapbox about the Jews because I think it's vitally important for us as believers and as Christians to understand the role of the Jewish nation in Israel. Key, key verse on this is Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, 
and I will curse him who curses you. God told that to Abraham. He says, those that bless you, Abraham, I will bless. Those that curse you, Abraham, I will curse. God loves the nation of Israel and the Jews. We have to remember that. They're still his chosen people. And I like to say out here a lot is right now we're living in this church age, in this age of grace, where the gospel is coming to us, the Gentiles. The Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew. But when the gospel also goes forth to the Jews and the Jews get saved, boy, that's when the party really starts. And that's going to be a blessing. And so therefore, it's so important to understand when there's this hellish hate of the Jews, this shows how much God loves them. And we need to remember that as individuals, that God blesses those that bless them. You know, one of the reasons why I believe America has been such a blessed nation is because of our role in support of Israel. It always concerns me when we hear politicians or, or whatever talking about not fully supporting Israel. Well, that's a dangerous place to be, people. That's a very dangerous place to be. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Haman hated the Jews. Why did Haman hate the Jews? Because Satan hates Jews. Satan hates that which God loves. So now Haman comes out with this idea of, we're going to kill them all. Verse 7, he's got this idea, we're going to pull a lot out. We're going to just pick a month, and they pick the last month of the year for their calendar. And so it was the first month, and he basically says, okay, in 12 months, we're going to kill them. We're going to pick a date, and we're just going to kill all the Jews. Now he's got to get support for this, so he goes to the king, and he says, King, verse 8, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's. They do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. See, now he's got the king's sight because he goes to the king, and we've learned this in chapters 1 and 2. King Azarius was a very prideful man. King, there's people living in your kingdom. They don't worship you. They don't respect you. They're the Jews. We need to kill them. We need to destroy them. you got to remember at this time, the Jews are heavily outnumbered. It was in 586 B.C. when Babylon destroyed Israel that all the Jews were taken in captivity back to this kingdom. Well, Babylon was in charge. The Persians came and defeated the Babylonians. And so now these Jews are a minority group living in this kingdom. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. They're outmanned. It'd be a slaughter. And so now Haman says, let's get the king's permission. We pick this date. And so now that this date's picked, we're going to kill them all. All the Jews. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamamathoth, the Agiite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said, I agree to this. So now the word goes out to everybody that this date in the 12th month that they're all going to be killed and they can plunder them. Look at this from the Persian perspective. There's this outsider group. They're different than you. So maybe you got a Jewish neighbor and it's like, well, you know, I really like what he has. This comes around. Hey, I just marked the calendar. Twelfth month comes around, I get to go kill him. I can take whatever I want. It's signed by the king. This is allowed to be, and I can do it. So this is passes as law. Now, you can see what God has been doing here. The reason Queen Vashti in chapter 1 lost her job is because God wanted Esther to be in there in chapter 2. So Esther becomes queen, a Jew, a secret Jew, because he knew in chapter 3 that Haman was going to try to kill all the Jews. See, God's working this all out. This had been set in motion, and God knew that. So when you're living in a moment right now, and you're like, Lord, what is going on? God knows. He set things in motion. He knows what's going on. Things behind the scene that you don't even see, he's already working at and taking care of. But what's the result of this? Well, look at verse 15. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed, or some translations, confused. When you live your life in sin, you are going to be confused and perplexed. That's just what happens. When you live your life in that moment of flesh, you're going to be confused and perplexed. There's a great verse I love. It's 1 Corinthians 14.33. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. When somebody comes to me and they're living their life in confusion, I don't mean it judgmentally, but then they're not living their lives in the will of the Lord. 
Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I don't know how many times people have come and said, well, I, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do. I'm just so confused. I can't think straight. I can't tell up from down. Wait a second. Take a step back. Give this over to the Lord. Quiet your heart before him, and he'll reveal to you. Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Well, I can't do that. I've tried. It's just not working. No, it is working. You're letting your emotions get the best of you. I can't control it. Yes, you can. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. When we allow our lives to be run by emotion and sin and fear and anxiety and worry, you're going to be confused and perplexed. It's just a fact. When you step back and say, okay, Lord, I have to look at this from your eyes. You're the God of peace. God gives that to you. Turn, if you will, to Psalm chapter 5, please. Psalm chapter 5. We need to have that time to quiet our hearts before the Lord and say, okay, God, I don't want confusion to reign. I don't want to be perplexed. I don't want to be in that moment of, I can't think, I don't know, what do you want me to do? Let's quiet our hearts and see what God has to say. Psalm chapter 5, see what it has to say here. Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. For my voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. So vitally important to have that time with the Lord, to quiet your heart and seek him. Psalmist David is writing here in verse 3, in the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Now why does he do that in the morning? Because he doesn't know what the rest of the day is going to bring. That is why it's so vital to have that time with God. You don't know what's going to happen. When that phone rings, you have no idea. Because one of those times that phone's going to ring and it's not going to be good news. Yeah, right now, and I don't mean this to be uh, scary or anything, but right now, fine, the marriage is good, the kids are good, everything's good. You know Eventually, it's not going to be good. You know eventually there's going to be a bump in the road. You know it's coming. So God says you spend time with me now to prepare for when it's not going to be good. You need that comfort and grace eventually, and that comfort and grace comes from spending time with him. And so therefore, in the morning, I will direct it to you and I will look up. God says you spend that time with me knowing the rough times are coming. Now, does it have to be morning? It's not necessarily the time frame. It's the commitment of the heart. For me, I like to do my devotions in the morning before the day gets started. For Dawn, it works out best for her to do hers at night. It doesn't matter necessarily the time, but it's that commitment. We don't know what's going to happen. And so therefore, to battle the confusion in the world, to battle that perplexing that happens, Lord, I want to spend time with you on a regular basis to seek what you want for me. One of the songs um, they sang this morning for worship, and uh, during the first service I was sitting in here, and I wrote down the words, and I hope I got the words right, but I believe it was the Spirit song where it says, Oh, let him have those things that hold you, and his spirit like a dove will come and make you whole. How many things right now are holding you? I thought about that, I was saying that, Lord. How many things do I allow that hold me back? I, I allow that to hold me in sin, hold me in confusion, to hold me in worry, hold me in fear, hold me in anxiety. God says, you know what, give me those things that are holding you back, and let my spirit take care of those. How do you do that? Well, you do that by verse 3 of Psalm 5, by getting up in the morning and directing your day to him. Lord, it's in your hands. And that's why it's so vital to have that time with God, because you don't know what the future holds, I don't know what the future holds, but Lord, you do know what the future holds. When you guys leave today, make sure you take a look at the uh, uh, little sign that's there on top of the um, coat rack in the foyer. Great little saying about that, of trusting God. We don't know the, the future, but we know God's there, and we have to trust that, because it's going to happen. One of my analogies I always like to use, and I can't remember when I first heard it, is what I call the uh, coffee cup analogy. And you've probably heard this before. You're driving down the road, and you hit a bump, and you spill coffee all over yourself. Okay, what do you get mad at? You get mad at the coffee. What did the coffee do wrong? Coffee's a liquid. It just goes what liquids do. The cup spills. It does its liquid thing. Okay, well, I get mad at the cup. What did the cup do wrong? 
You're the one holding the cup. Well, it's the car's fault. Why is it the car's fault? You're driving the car. What really happened? The coffee spilling is a result of the car hitting a bump. The bump reveals that the coffee was going to spill. So when you have those moments in life where you are dealing with spilled coffee, your life's falling apart, your marriage is falling apart, it's not the coffee's fault. You hit a bump in the road. And to be quite honest, you weren't prepared for that bump in the road. Bumps are coming. I was just talking to somebody recently, and they were talking about the situation they were dealing with. And, and, and I said, listen, I'm not trying to pick at you, but the situation you're dealing with is not the problem. The situation you're dealing with is just revealing your heart to show that you're not spiritually where you're supposed to be. So often somebody calls me and they want to talk about situation A. Situation A is not the problem. Situation A just revealed to you what's going on in situation B, C, D, E, and F. Those situations reveal to you what's going on in your heart. Once again, it's not the coffee's fault. That bump in the road just revealed what was going on. We live in a confusing, perplexing time. And when we're not where we're supposed to be spiritually, in our lives, in our marriage, with whatever, those bumps hit us. Lord, I don't know what to do. That's why it's so vital to have that time with God on a regular basis where in the morning I direct to you, Lord, I will look up knowing that you're going to get me through whatever is coming my way, the known and the unknown, you will get me through. If we do not have that time to quiet our hearts before the Lord, we will be confused. We will be perplexed. And we'll be pickings right there for the enemy. Let's jump back to Esther 4 now and see what happens. Well, in verses 1 through 9, Mordecai finds out what's going on. Mordecai's heart broke. He starts putting on the sackcloth and the ashes there that you can see in uh, verse 4. And those are signs of mourning and, and repentance there. He's crying out with a loud voice. Well, he goes right before the king's gate and he's doing this. Well, Esther finds out about this, so Esther sends someone to Mordecai, tries to send him some new clothes, and say, hey, what's wrong here? Why are you mourning and weeping? Mordecai comes back to Esther and basically says, don't you know what happened? Don't you realize and see what's going on? Verse 8, he also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan. He might show it to Esther and explain it to her that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So Mordecai says, Esther, this is what's going on. This is the sadness and the sorrow that I'm dealing with right now. We as Jews are going to be killed. What's Esther's response? Verse 10, Esther spoke to Hathak, one of the eunuchs, and gave him a command from Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's providences know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Now, isn't this interesting? We know the book of Esther. Not to be repetitious here. God has ordained all this. Chapter 1, Vashti, the queen loses her job. Chapter 2, Esther wins the beauty pageant, becomes queen. Chapter 3, Haman wants to destroy all the Jews. So therefore, now we're to chapter 4. Esther is divinely put in a position of power and authority where she can influence the king to save the Jews. God's working this out. But the problem is verse 11. Esther says, I can't. Can't. Wow, how many times have we done the I can't thing? I can't. I, I mean, I know what the Lord's calling me to do, but I, I just can't. Why? Well, for Esther, it was my, my life may be on the line. I don't think you and I deal too many times with our life being on the line, but we have a lot of lame excuses, don't we, for I can't. The Lord says do this. Well, I can't, Lord. Well, I was just uh, fill in the blank. It's, it's a really busy time right now in life, or just, you know, uh, I got this going on, or, or this, or that, or I just don't feel up to it, whatever it is. We have excuse after excuse after excuse where we can't. God has ordainedly, divinely put us in a place, a position where we can influence people, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, be a witness for the kingdom of God, but yet we say we can't. Sometimes due to fear, what will people think, what will be to say? 
Sometimes do just be honest. Laziness. We can't. We all have excuses. Esther's excuse was, if I go into the king, he hasn't called for me, I'm going to die. I'm going to... We all have those excuses. Verse 12. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. So if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai says in verse 13, he goes, you're going to die too, Esther. If you don't say anything, you're going to die. He says in verse 14, the Jews will be taken care of. Relief and deliverance will arise. Now, I'm adding a little bit here maybe to the scriptures of God's going to take care of the Jews. He goes, but Esther, you, verse 14, have been put in this place in a position for this. There's no reason Esther should have been queen. She was the young, poor Jewish girl. And now she's queen of the Persian Empire. That is not by her doing. That is a God thing. Dawn and I have these two phrases that we use a lot. We call it divine appointment and a God thing. If I run into somebody that I haven't seen in a while, I'll be like, hey, that was a divine appointment. I got a chance to see them, talk to them, minister to them. It was a divine appointment. Or if something happens and it's beyond our control, but yet God works it out for the good, we'll just say it was a God thing. God worked it out. I'm glad he did. Maybe it wasn't what I was expecting. It wasn't my time frame, but it was a God thing. I'm glad it worked out for the way it was. You know what? Verse 14, this is a divine appointment. This is a God thing, Esther. Now, you either understand this and realize this, or you don't. How many of us spend most of our Christian walk trying to get out of God's will? He's put you there to share the gospel, to witness, to be a light, but yet we spend most of our Christian walk trying to not do what God wants us to do. We do the verse 11 of Esther. I can't. For whatever reason, I can't. And then Mordecai comes and says, you can. You have been put here divinely. This is a divine appointment, and this is why you are here. I don't know where you're at right now in your life, and I don't know where God has called you, what he's calling you to do, but I do know verse 14 is true for us. God has put you at a place and a reason for a purpose. Now, you either can fight that, and let's be honest, be miserable, and make excuses like verse 11, I can't. Or you can say, okay, God, this is what you've called me to do. So since this is what you've called me to do, that also means you're going to empower me and give me the spirit and the wisdom to do it. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. See, Esther gets it in verse 16. I'll go. If I perish, I perish. Why can't we have that mindset? Lord, I'm just going to do what you tell me to do. Whatever happens, happens, because I'm in your will. I trust you. The problem is we sit here and we think about it. We rehash it. What about this? What about that? Sometimes we just need to go and say, Lord, I'm going in your will. I'm trusting in your will. Whatever happens, happens, because I'm doing what you've been obedient, what I've been obedient to. I think it's interesting, though. She asks everybody to fast in verse 16. Fasting is not something that we talk about a lot. It's not one of those topics that comes up a lot. It's really interesting. And, and I'm going to throw a lot of verses here at you. So if you're taking notes, you can write down these verses. And you can go back later and look at each passage to get the full context of it. But it's interesting when it comes to this concept of fasting. In Matthew uh, chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus twice says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. Because he says when you fast. The assumption being that you and I as believers will Fast. Now, why would we fast? Fasting is a time to let go of the physical and focus on the spiritual. Fasting is a time for you to say, that time that I would have spent eating and feeding my physical flesh, 
I will not eat, and I will then feed my spiritual body instead in prayer and being with the Lord. It's a time to sacrifice the physical to focus on the spiritual. And Jesus said, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, once again, assuming that we would do it. So why would we do that? We're human beings. Some of you are sitting here right now, and you just can't wait for lunch. You're sitting, we want to eat. That's what we do. So why would God say, don't eat? But I wrote down five different reasons why to fast. And I'm just going to throw them at you, and I'll give you the references. You can kind of look at it. The first one, the reason of why you would fast, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, is you'd fast for your marriage. And that always just blows people away. If your marriage isn't doing good, spend some time fasting. Well, why would I do that? That time that you spend in eating, you'll now spend praying for your spouse. You'll spend praying for yourself. You'll spend praying for your family. It will be a blessing to you. Now, you have to know this. The purpose of not fasting is to say, See, God? I didn't eat today, so now you have to say yes to my prayer. Lord, look at me. I have not ate now for two days. You owe me. No, that's not the purpose of fasting. The purpose of not fasting is saying, see, Lord, I didn't eat, so now say yes. The purpose of fasting is to say, Lord, I'm going to let go of that physical time that I spend feeding myself, and now I'm going to feed myself spiritually with just being with you. If your marriage is hurting, why not fast for it? Why not spend some time doing that? Maybe your marriage isn't hurting. Why not spend some time fasting just to have it keep being a blessing, be a light and a witness? That's one of the purposes of fasting. The next one, Acts 13. Acts 13, at the beginning of the chapter, they fasted for wisdom and listening to the Lord. you got a big decision coming up and you don't know up from down on it, you don't know what you should do? Spend some time fasting over it. Lord, give me wisdom. That time that you normally spend eating, I don't know, reading the paper, doing whatever, or just eating, spend that time in prayer. Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, I'm listening to you. I want to spend this time in fasting and listening to you. Because this is an important thing. Next one, one of my favorite ones, is in Matthew 17. Matthew 17 is the story of where the, uh, they brought the boy that was demon-possessed, and they said, cast out the demon, and they couldn't do it. The apostles couldn't. And so what happens, they go to Jesus, and Jesus said, this one only comes out by prayer and fasting. And I always found that interesting, because if it only came out by prayer and fasting, what were the apostles supposed to do? Oh, your son's demon-possessed. This one only comes out by fasting. Give us two days. We're going to fast for a couple days, come back on Thursday at 12, and we'll cast them out. How would they be able to do that? The point is, Jesus is saying, is there is an ongoing fasting in your life of preparation. So sometimes you fast just for those spiritual battles that may be coming up that you don't even know about. Isn't that a crazy concept? You'd actually prepare for something? But yet, that's what we do in life. You prepare. You fill your tank up with gas before a trip. You set money aside for your property taxes. You prepare for what's going to go on. But yet spiritually, so often what we do in spiritually is just whatever happens, I'll deal with it then. God says there is a time of spiritual preparation. Because once again, not to be a doomsday guy here, you're going to have bad news hit you eventually. It's going to happen. God says spend time with me preparing for those spiritual battles that are going to come. When my phone rings, I have no idea what it is. Good news, someone just had a baby. Bad news, someone just lost a loved one. Good news, someone wants to get married. Bad news, the marriage is falling apart. Good news, the test came back. No cancer. Bad news, the test came back cancer. I have no idea. I need to spend time in the morning preparing for whatever comes my way and saying, Lord, I don't know what it's going to be, but I want to be ready for it. Fasting prepares you for those spiritual battles that you don't even know are coming. Fourth one about fasting. A fasting of just prayer. Just prayer. One of my favorite passages about prayer is found in the book of Luke, Luke uh, chapter 2. It talks about these gals. It was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple. But listen, she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. You may not physically be able to do a lot. You may hear us saying, hey, we need help cleaning the church. Uh, Hey, we need help in the back. 
Um, you know, in a couple weeks here, we're going to go do Special Olympics or, you know, we're going to do some service days. Physically, you can't. You know what you can do? You can skip a meal every now and then and pray. You could take that prayer request sheet that we have on the back table and take it home with you and say, you know what, I physically can't serve in those areas, but I could skip a meal this week and spend that time praying for those people on that prayer request sheet. That's a service of fasting and praying. Or you say, you know what, there is 10 minutes of prayer request on Wednesday nights. I have no idea who half those people are, but I can write down those prayer requests and I can spend a day this week fasting over a meal praying for them. I could just spend a time fasting and praying over the church. I don't know what it is. There is that ministry of fasting and prayer where you just say, Lord, I'm going to give these prayer requests over to you. Luke chapter 2. Last one with fasting. Psalm 35. David does a fasting to humble himself. Not a reason, really. It's not that he's really seeking his marriage to be better. It's not that he's trying to find wisdom. It's not that he's got spiritual battles coming up. It's not that he's got some big prayer requests. He just wants to humble himself and spend time with the Lord. Wow, what a time of fasting. Just, Lord, I just want to skip this meal and just spend time with you. What a blessing that would be. Why don't we do those things? Very simply put, and this is the deepest spiritual point that you're going to hear all day. Why don't we fast? Because we like to eat. How's that for deep? We like to do it. Why can't God ask me to fast from mowing my yard? Or, I mean, wouldn't that be great? Boy, James, your grass is tall. I know I'm fasting. Um, we, that's why it's a little bit of a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice to skip that meal and say, Lord, I want to spend it with you. Now, once again, you don't skip the meal to butter God up. Lord, I really want this job. I will not eat for a week. Just give me this job. That's not what it is. It's, Lord, I want to spend time with you to quiet my heart, my physical desires, to focus on the spiritual desires, be it my marriage, wisdom, listening, spiritual battles, prayer, uh, humbling myself. I don't know what it is, Lord, but I just want to spend time with you. And as you spend that time letting go of the flesh, God says, it's a great time for us to talk. It's a great time for us to talk. Elias is at this phase where he wants to talk all the time. And he's always got something he wants to talk about. And so he says, we need to go someplace where we can talk by ourselves. So we go in, he makes an appointment basically, and we go in and we sit down and we talk. I always look at that, isn't that kind of like fasting? You go into the room by yourself, you shut the door, there's not a single distraction. It's just the father speaking to his child. Whatever the child wants to say, I'm listening. We talk about it, we pray about it. Isn't that what fasting is? Lord, I'm just letting go of the, all the physical. I'm just going to spend time with you. So Elias wanted to talk about something the other day, so we were downstairs in our basement, we have this playroom. So Elias and I step out of the playroom and we talk. Those that go back in, Judah says, Dad, I need to talk to you. So Judah comes out, so we talk. He had an issue. Go back in. Kenan, two years old, says, I, I need to talk to you. So we go out and I say, Kenan, what do you want to talk about? I just want to tell you I love you. So I said, you got the whole inheritance. I said, you can <laughs> Never liked the first two. Um, but there's something about just wanting to spend time with your father. And you know what? It's not wrong to fast over an issue. There, there's a lot of times out here where I got something big coming up. I may have like a huge marriage counseling thing, and, I, and I'll fast the meal before and just pray. Or we got something big coming up at church, we'll fast. I, I'll be honest, I wish there was more times of just, Lord, I just want to spend time with my dad. Just humble myself and fast with you. Two quick stories on fasting here, and then we'll close up. Um, oh, it's, been, it's been a long time ago, probably 14 years, 15 years ago. Dawn and I were first married, and we had a Bible study in our house, and somebody said, hey, everybody's fasting for this. I don't even remember what it was, but they, they called a fast. So everybody in the Bible study was going to fast. So for peer pressure, Dawn and I said, oh, we'll fast too. I don't even remember what it was, but we're going to fast. So we were going to fast that day. So we got up, skipped breakfast, spent time in prayer. Everything was great. We had to go to Walsion to get something. So we went to Walsion, and um, it was lunchtime. And we were at a place in Walsion. We were around all the fast food restaurants. And grease smells so good. I, I think heaven will just smell like grease. Um, so we got lunch. 
after we said we're going to fast that day. And I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. I've never gotten so sick that afternoon. I don't know if it was a God thing. I don't know. But ever since that day, I tell you, if I say I'm going to fast, I make sure my heart means it. I make sure I do it in the, in the will of the Lord. And I don't say it just haphazardly. I'll fast for you. Because one of the things it also says in Matthew 6 is don't do the fasting thing as an attention getter. That's not the purpose of it. It's between you and the Lord to quiet your heart. And I, that really hit me that time of I'm just doing it to do it. Everybody else is doing it. No, Lord, I want to do this for the right motives and the right reasons. One other story real quick about fasting. A few years ago out here at church, I had a situation where, and I shared this a couple Wednesdays ago, where there was a guy that um, going through a really difficult time. One of the most difficult times I've seen out here in the, in the 12 years I've been out here. And uh, he was really hit by something hard. And I, I, I was just afraid it was going to break him. I mean, just, just absolutely break him. And um, I went up to him after a study, after I found out about the situation, and I said, how you doing? He said, I'm doing good. And people tell me they're doing good all the time, and they're not. And I said, how are you really doing? He goes, no, I'm really okay. And I'm like, no, you're not, because people lie to me all the time. He goes, no, I'm really okay. I didn't believe him. I said, how can you be doing okay? I mean, I knew what was going into the situation. He goes, well... It was a couple weeks ago you called on fasting. And, I, and, I, and he said the situation was beyond his control. It was too much for him to handle. He goes, so i just been fasting over and giving it over to the Lord, and God gave me peace. I thought, wow, it works. You know, but it does. I cannot stress to you enough. I know the concept doesn't make sense. Problem X is here, so I don't eat? No, problem X is here. You let go of the world for a while to give it over to God. And that's what fasting is, is you would let go of that flesh, that time of the flesh, and you give it over to the Lord to allow him to work in the spirit there. And God just speaks to your heart. I cannot encourage you enough. If fasting is not something that you do, I encourage you to do it. I know people that pick one day out of the week or one meal out of the week, and they just fast regularly on that meal or day just to spend that time with the Lord. I know people, like I said, that when a situation pops up, hey, I need to go spend some time fasting over this. It's a powerful weapon that God has given us. Last thing I'm going to say here is in Isaiah 58, 6. You don't need to turn there. When God says, what type of fast do I want? He goes, is this not the fast that I've chosen? He goes, this is the fast I've chosen. To loose the bonds of wickedness, and to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke. Do you have sin in your life you don't know how to handle? Good thing to fast and give it to the Lord. Are you burdened and oppressed right now? Good time to fast and give it over to the Lord. God says, it will bless you. It will definitely bless you. Marv, you to come forward here with the final song. I encourage you this week. We have uh, excellent Wednesday service on Wednesday. We'll do a topical on the Christ and the cross with